I used to have to deal with the entities in China, many of which are doing some of these things. Traditionally, over the years, they have been just in sheer numbers, far outpacing the amount coming from any other source, Russia, Iran, North Korea, etc. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. In August, China sentenced a Canadian businessman to 11 years in prison for spying. Michael Spavor and another Canadian, Michael Kovrig, have been held in China since 2018. The sentencing is widely seen as the latest tit-for-tat over Canada's detention of a Huawei executive. For businesses operating in China, it's also a stark reminder of the uncertain environment being fueled by rising tensions between China and the United States. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks to Randall Phillips, Managing Partner for Asia at the Mintz Group, a global due diligence and investigations firm. They discuss what you should know about doing business with or in China. Randy, it's a particular honor and privilege, as always, to be able to sit sit with you and discuss some of the most important issues of uh, today uh, involving U.S.-Chinese relations and uh, what business leaders have to think about. And just by way of context, uh, I've had the privilege and honor of knowing Randy for many years, working closely with him. Uh, He had an extraordinary career uh, with the government uh, as a station chief in China for the Central Intelligence Agency and has been in the private sector advising a wide range of firms and institutions about uh, China and U.S.-Chinese relations. And uh, in particular, uh, he brings uh, not only great perspective, but uh, continuing to live in China. He has a very, very established sense of history and has uh, very, very clear insights about the political, legal, regulatory, and reputational issues that we are uh, dealing with. So, Randy, thank you in advance for once again having the opportunity to sit with you and pick your brain. And it's particularly uh, an interesting time in China, in Hong Kong. And maybe you can give us a quick overview over the last three, four months uh, concerning um, China, some of the regulatory actions that have been taken, uh, the U.S. response, and how businesses should start to think about the opportunities uh, that either they're already engaged in or the opportunities that they're considering. What do companies have to think about? Uh, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to, uh, to join you on this. And uh, certainly there is a lot to think about. Um, you know, many things have hit the news on the regulatory side uh, recently with uh, uh, and financial and with um, uh, a couple other uh, potential listings with the DD listing and uh, regulators cracking down on a, a variety of industries in the education sector, et cetera. It, it definitely has set off a, uh, you know, a a wave of justified concern among business in, in uh, China. But I think it's important to kind of look at the, the, the broader backdrop of all of this. Uh, you have in, in a uh, leadership under Xi Jinping that's looking to go into next year's uh, party congress to basically seek something that hasn't been done since Mao, and that is to continue his rule into a a third term. Uh, And 
in when he first came in, and particularly before the last party congress, he told the other leaders that you know, he should be judged you know, basically on uh, three key challenges. One was uh, poverty alleviation. They've done pretty good on that. Uh, other was um, uh, trying to reduce uh, uh, sort of political risks or uh, basically to uh, strengthen China's position in the world and uh, therefore make it uh, much more self-sufficient. Uh, he's done a pretty good job on that. The third one is financial risk, and he's got about a C- minus right now. And so what is happening is the, uh, yeah, the particularly the regulators, uh, but those who are uh, in charge of trying to make sure that they are uh, trying to uh, deleverage or to limit some of those financial risks, are in overdrive right now to try to uh, produce on that front before they get into next year as a, a major political year for Xi Jinping. So what that's doing is it's creating a, an environment where they feel like they've got to get a lot done in a relatively short period of time. And that's what's adding to a lot of the, uh, the concern on the part of businesses there. They're not quite sure what might be hit next. And I don't even think the regulators in China are sure what they may hit next, but it's going to be a fraught period uh, with some uh, justified concern on the part of business of you know, exactly where is this, this whole effort going, but it's going to carry on well into next year. So, Randy, you're, you're talking about sort of the current political environment and a lot of what's uh, happening. There's an expression that you know, has become popular, in, at least in my conversations, that when the big boys are bowling, you don't want to be a pin. And a lot of companies feel a bit like a pin these days with respect to the geopolitical issues. There are the issues of sanctions, there are issues of human rights, there are issues of climate change, there are issues of accounting transparency and the listing of companies both on the Hong Kong exchange and here in the U.S. There are the issues about companies checking their supply chains linkages of investment capital or relationships to potential branches of the military. How does one actually navigate this environment? And certainly tensions are high. There's a certain degree of vitriol in many of the comments uh, between both sides. There are also broader geopolitical concerns around security in the South China Seas and the topic of Taiwan and its independence and security. And just to throw one more issue, whether or not there is military escalation on both sides, what should businesses be thinking about? What should they be looking for? How do you begin to navigate this? Now, it's a, certainly a, a very important uh, and lengthy list of, uh, uh, of issues there, which we could probably spend uh, most of the rest of the day on. Uh, I would say from a a broader perspective, uh, not like unlike anywhere else, but certainly in, in China, given the, uh, uh, the various geopolitical tensions and particularly with the United States going on, if you're an American company uh, going into to China, you have to have a, as firm of a grasp as you can of what are China's priorities. You know, what, what is it that that, uh, that government and that party, what are they trying to accomplish? Uh, be mindful, obviously, of the those geopolitical issues that are often out of your control, but will affect your, your business environment. Um, try to stick to you know your business and not 
hopefully become a pawn in that. But that first part of understanding what, what China wants is, is critical. And I would cut that down in size to, uh, it depends on what sector you're in, but if, let's say you're in the, the tech sector, you've often been in a, in a rough environment because China's been seeking uh, you know, a, a form of uh, tech independence, shall we say, or self-sufficiency for a number of years now and has been suspicious of uh, foreign, particularly American tech, for uh, quite some time now. And it's clear where China is going is that it wants to uh, eliminate its dependence at the soonest possible date on particularly American technology. And so you recognize that, and then you have to realize that your time in that market probably has a half-life that's less than what you would like it to be, and you're going to have to develop your uh, your business elsewhere to help balance what you may start losing in, in China. If you're in, uh, let's say, pharmaceuticals and medical device right now, that's another area that the, the Chinese government has made clear that they want to develop uh, indigenous capabilities in a way to be able to challenge uh, globally uh, other leading firms, whether American or otherwise, and so they're and they realize they've got market power to be able to demand uh, certain pricing and, and turnover of intellectual property, and very willing to do it. So, uh, understanding that that's a, a goal of what China is trying to uh, achieve is is very important. And then you you layer on the uh, yeah, things that can happen, whether it's Taiwan, South China Sea, uh, human rights issues. Uh, issues on, on Xinjiang that uh, at any moment you could be somebody in your uh, in your company or even you know, a third party vendor that uh, you know either says something does something can be social media that can then come back to bite you. This is one thing where you know doing risk monitoring of your the people in your universe uh, whether they are direct employees, uh, vendors, um, you know, third parties that are significantly tied to you to keep track of uh, what is happening in that universe for basically to uh, adjust your risk on a real-time basis. That, that's actually a, a booming area right now to try to, uh, for companies to really manage that in a real-time basis rather than a one-time due diligence type of situation. So it's, it's basically... Uh, you know, like going back to an old saying from Sun Tzu, uh, it's Jirji Jirbi Baijan Budai, which means you know, know yourself and know your your enemy or your your opponent, and a hundred battles you will not lose, kind of thing. And you've got to know, you know, what the environment is that you're going into and what the other guy is trying to accomplish, and adjust accordingly. Randy, you talked about the importance of staying on top of the environment and. Uh, which is not just a one-time snapshot around due diligence. Can you explain the best ways to do that? And you also referenced uh, sort of, in a, I'll call it, as you go in, understanding that there's a half-life uh, to opportunities in China, or there may be a half-life. Maybe you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, sure, that sounds good. I, I, on the um, the risk monitoring, uh, you know, it's... There's a couple of ways you can do it. One thing that we're really trying to do now is to provide 
tech-aided solutions that are tailored to, to clients and their own uh, business needs and their own sense of what, what is uh, at risk for them. So it's kind of hard to have a, uh, you know, a one-size-fit-all solution, but essentially what we would do is uh, sit down with a, uh, a company or a client, whatever business they might be in, to really understand wh- what is their universe of vendors, third parties, employees uh, that would be uh, potentially conducting uh, risky activities for them or what, would, what keeps them up at night. And to basically use the, the tools that we've done as a business, uh, and a number of other businesses obviously have done this as well, to aggregate data, to constantly sift it, to see if something hits on any of those entities or persons on a real-time basis at a portal that is sitting within the four walls of the, the client company, where on a real-time basis they can monitor and see, uh, you know, is, has somebody just put something out on social media that... You know, criticizes Xi Jinping or uh, you know, somebody. Uh, it could obviously be attuned to the issues of fraud, etc. And give them more of a, a, a ongoing look at the data uh, at, a, at a very attuned uh, pace for that is of concern to the client, rather than a one-time. Hey, could you check out? so-and-so or these 10 people and you give them a report and that's great up until that moment but it's not ongoing so we've we've invested a lot in that and that's um i think it's something that's really growing and attractiveness in the market and particularly in an environment like china that has all the other risks that uh, that you had mentioned earlier so I'd, I'd say that 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 is uh is very important uh and the other issue on the uh uh basically talking about the uh, military-related folks and, and things like that, uh, that's certainly uh, an issue that's probably only going to continue to grow in importance, particularly in the uh, based on concerns that are coming out of the U.S. Congress, out of the administration, uh, concerns that of uh, you know, things that may be, uh, whether it's businesses or uh, research or whatever it might be in the United States from people affiliated with the the uh, People's Liberation Army that, that somehow uh, is going on that we need to put a stop to it. The, the problem that you have is ever since 2017 when uh, Xi Jinping uh, put forward his um, uh, a law, frankly, on this, uh, basically known as a civil-military fusion, that it's now required of any civilian entity in China to share uh, anything that the military needs in terms of uh, you know, information, IP, whatever it might be. So, just based on that, it has kind of removed, you know, that edge of. Uh, you may recall from Cold War days when you'd worry about uh, is it you know, dual use, uh, a certain technology? Is that something that may or may not be used in, uh, in uh, you know an adversary's military? This is by law now in China. Anything that that uh, would have you know, potential use from uh, whether it's a cyber capability, advanced computing, materials, whatever it is, that has to be shared with the military if they want it. So you almost have to assume that it's going to get into the hands, whatever the technology or item is, of the, the uh, Chinese military if they, in fact, want it. And so I think it's set off a whole range of concerns uh, that is, certainly was there at the late Obama administration during the Trump administration and now with the uh, the Biden administration to say, how do we protect against that? And it's it's creating a situation where you're finding more and more things that 
that somebody can make an argument and say, well, we've got to you know, protect a variety of, whether it's technologies or uh, materials, science, or uh, protect our supply chains, et cetera. And it's that environment, I think, is only going to continue to get messier as we go along. And Randy, um, part of what I think companies are trying to reconcile is um, U.S. regulators have articulated concerns about linkages to the Chinese military. There are specific sanctions regimes in place. They have basically said companies have to check in the first, second, third order to see whether there are relationships with the Chinese military, the issue of human rights and where business is being done and what's happening to the Muslim population has become part of the political and regulatory scheme here in the U.S. And somewhat in an unprecedented fashion over the last month, you had the president issue um, basically a warning about for companies doing business in Hong Kong. And then that was followed shortly thereafter with an advisement about cybersecurity and attribution to the Chinese in terms of a uh, recent attack. And whether it's protecting IP, cybersecurity, complying with sanctions, and also trying to maintain one's corporate reputation, how do you begin to balance what feels as highly contradictory and highly conflicting regulatory and political and reputational concerns coming out of China for companies doing business there, and then also coming out of the U.S.? No, great questions. Um, Again, I would point to uh, understanding as best you can what are the objectives, frankly, on on both the U.S. and the the China side. Uh, The China side, again, there was an excellent Bloomberg opinion piece at the end of last week. I forget who the author was, uh, but I think summarized this very well of for the longest time now, particularly since um, Deng Xiaoping came into China, a view of a lot of uh, not just American businesses, but a lot of foreign business was, well, yeah, they're, they're communists in, in name only, uh, but boy, they're, you know, this, look at the economy booming in China and uh, uh, obviously to be rich is glorious, Deng's saying, and a lot of money is being made in China. And I think people began to forget that, in fact, uh, there is a system there in China. The leadership is the Communist Party of China. And you have in Xi Jinping a true believer uh, who grew up in that system. He believes it. And uh, a leadership there that is you know, still looking to, to basically use this growth stage as you know just a stage to where they hope to obviously continue to maintain control but you know take China in a different direction they're not this uh, if they just grow rich they'll they'll turn you know will turn into a Wilsonian uh, democracy and you know, and capitalists at heart it's it's just different and definitely under uh, Xi Jinping in this uh, these last five years he's very clearly and openly said, but uh, you know they're really trying to promote the China system, the way in which they operate, uh, government, and the way the party rules, as a better alternative to Western democracy, and that's that's something that uh, is openly talked about, and he truly does believe that. 
So you have to kind of understand this is what's driving the the various uh, financial as well as political policies coming out of China. Uh, they clearly have decided on Hong Kong that uh, it was time to shut down uh, the protests there and take a firmer hand and felt that they were willing to take whatever pushback came from the West on Hong Kong. And there hasn't been all that much pushback, but they've, they've taken it. Uh, same thing goes, they're, they're not going to brook any opposition about the way they're handling Xinjiang and the, uh, the Uyghur population there. They see that as a, an internal affair and are, are feel strong enough to say, well, you know, you know we're, we're going to take whatever pushback we get. Uh, I think they're very much feeling like uh, their moment has arrived, that uh, China's rising, the United States is declining. Their only argument is over how quickly those two things are happening. Uh, again, Xi Jinping has very clearly said this is there are changes happening uh, in uh, in the world geopolitically that haven't happened in a hundred years, and this is a great opportunity for China. And so they're continuing to push on those things. On the U.S. side, there's obviously concern about uh, what what China is going to do uh, as, with its increased power and the the challenge that it represents. You know, more so than the Soviet Union ever was. It's, uh, you know, it's a military, it's an economic challenge, it's a technological challenge, and frankly, a, a form of government challenge. And so you've got politicians and regulators and, and all and businesses that are uh, understandably concerned about that in the U.S. and various efforts uh, to try to figure out what we're going to do about this. For example, the, the USICA uh, legislation in the Senate is designed to do a, a wide variety of Things uh, it passed in the Senate, it's now in the House to come up with their own bill. But it's designed specifically of what are we going to do from investments in R and D to defensive measures for technology to uh, how we aid our our companies globally in this competition. I think you know an even greater effort than what uh, the Senate put together is going to be necessary for this. It's going to have to be a change of mindset in many ways uh, among businesses, and I think. President Biden's really been trying to hit on this of, look, at, we're going to, uh, we realize that we're in a relationship now for the foreseeable future that there's going to be a lot of competition and let's hope it's not confrontation, but we got to be ready for that too. But definitely the competition is very much on. All right. So with geopolitical competition on, what should companies be looking at and looking for? And as you've already indicated, Randy, this is not about taking a single snapshot, but staying on top of not only your businesses, but broader macro issues. What should people be looking at, watching out for in terms of the dynamics between the U.S. and China? I think just anticipating this uh, tension is not going away anytime soon and that it's going to be uh, you know, a daily source of uh, you know, potential problems to any given business uh, that is, it can be touched readily by uh, this competition. I mean, there's still great opportunities in, in China, uh, you know, depending on what market sector you're in. Again, it's, uh, there's certain areas that are getting greater pressure than others because of China's drive for self-sufficiency. But there's, you know, virtually any business would say the same thing, and that is you, you can't not be in that market. You've got to uh, try to find a way to serve that market. It, it seems that you know, uh, we've done studies among the American Chamber of Commerce 
uh, in China. I remember companies, about a thousand companies, and uh, most of them are still invested in, you know, and in, uh, in, uh, expecting to stay in that market. And some even investing even further there, but they're all thinking about diversification of supply chains, and uh, at some level, at least, how do we operate in a to the China market, set ourselves up for that, and maybe a different way for, for lack of a better term, the rest of the world. And you know, how do we position ourselves to not get caught in the middle between regulators on both sides who are battling things? So, in other words almost uh, creating a two-sphere type business, especially if you're in the, the tech world, you are you know, being forced to confront this in, in a, quite a significant way. It's just really continuing to keep your, your finger on the pulse of you know, where the, the various pressures are coming from and try to keep yourself as nimble as possible to be able to adjust to it. Again, some industries are, that are key areas of focus uh, for China, for example, in the Made in China 2025 industries, uh, advanced avionics, uh, semiconductors, et cetera, you're going to feel more pressure there than you do if you're selling chocolate bars. But uh, you, in any regard, you're going to have to realize and react to the, kind of those pressures that are coming from both political systems. Randy, I know you've been a particularly astute observer of the different geopolitical issues and how they can influence a company's ability to do business. Let me just throw a few at you and maybe you can give us your best guess of how things might resolve. So there's currently a legal battle involving the extradition of the CFO of Huawei, the case involving evasion of U.S. sanctions as they apply to Iran. That case is still within the courts of Canada and obviously within the U.S. system. The issue of human rights and the Muslim population in China, uh, potential military conflict in the South China Sea and uh, involving Taiwan and its independence. And then I would um, highlight the continuing spy versus spy that seems to be going on in the cyber universe with continuing cybersecurity issues and cyber attacks. How would you begin to weigh those things and are those reasonable levers to be watching to understand what the environment is going to look like for businesses who are trying to do business in China as well as operate in Hong Kong? But maybe you can give us a sense of you know, how to weigh those things and how to begin to understand what could make things less precarious or add conflict. Those are all great issues. Uh, I think there's something to learn from uh, each one of those. Uh, let's start with uh, Madam Meng from uh, Huawei. Uh, I'm sure listeners know the, the, the background on all that. This is uh, you know, the whole issue of the request for her uh, her arrest and hopefully extradition to the U.S. was based on uh, Huawei's dealings, and she is the CFO that violated uh, sanctions for Iran. I think the, you know, the, the, the evidence seemed pretty overwhelming. The Canadian authorities uh, did what they did. Um, and uh, so what did China do? They immediately picked up two people, two Canadians in Beijing, and uh, have had them in a uh, what they call a black jail 
south of Beijing, where they rarely see the light of day, uh, are kept up uh, to all hours without music and, and regular interrogations, treated in a very miserable uh, way. And Madame Meng is living in one of her two mansions in Vancouver, quite safe with the rule of law and being able to keep her. Essentially, she obviously can't leave Vancouver, but she's living quite comfortably. Um, you compare and contrast what that means for you know, a rule of law nation like Canada versus the way China decided to handle that. And they also obviously have made it clear that uh, they're not going to accept any criticism of their system or the way in which they've picked up the Canadians and are prepared to use their political and economic power to, to push back on anybody who does. So it, it, that's going to continue until this case gets resolved and however it, it, it gets resolved. Canada has been very, I think it's been a very principled position that they've had on this. They've taken a lot of heat. There were basically, I think it was sorghum and a few other Canadian canola, a few other products from Canada that have been really hit hard in the market from China shutting down in retaliation. And they've had a very rough relationship, but they've held tough the same way Australia has held tough over the economic coercion that they've had to suffer by insisting on an independent investigation of the, the coronavirus. The cyber issue that you raised, uh, this is something that's obviously been of great concern to uh, U.S. authorities for a long time. I used to have to deal with the, the entities in China that many of which are, are doing some of these things. They put a lot of resources into it, and traditionally over the years, they have been just in sheer numbers you know, far outpacing the amount coming from any other source, Russia, Iran, uh, North Korea, etc. Uh, but it's, it, it's being done on an industrial scale right now. And even after President Obama in 2015 had a, a meeting in California with Xi Jinping and really made it clear that, that there needs to be some restraint in all of this and the promises were made, uh, that has uh, been completely backtracked. And so now you're seeing you know, uh, levels of attack, particularly on um, personal information, a variety of U.S. government websites, business websites. That is, uh, they, there's clearly China's doubling down on this. Uh, and it has implications for any business listening will know from confidential information on business dealings, IP, personal information on uh, individuals that might be used against them. Uh, this is a, a huge issue that uh, a lot of resources in the U.S. government are really trying to figure out the the best way to fight back. And I would don't know, but I would sense that maybe there's a little bit of offense being played right now by the, the U.S., the same with Russia on the cyber issue after realizing that defense uh, quite cutting it the way we all want it to be. But uh, that's going to be an ongoing issue there. On Hong Kong, uh, you've got, uh, I think, a recognition that the environment there, it's not going to become... Uh, Beijing overnight, but it's the environment has certainly changed. So you've got a lot more uh, self-censorship happening right now among businesses and others in, in Hong Kong and, and, and a bit of hedging of bets. Uh, again, coming back to that phenomenon of you got to be in the China market somehow, you're not seeing a kind of a mass exodus. And I don't think you will see that, but you'll see a slow creep of basically hedging your bets a little bit to particularly in the financial firms of, uh, you know, we're going to be here, but we're going to maybe slowly reduce our, our footprint and maybe move some assets to Singapore or elsewhere in the region to kind of hedge that a bit. But I don't think you're going to see 
uh, under current circumstances, a huge change in the, the, the map there. But the people are certainly nervous about you know, where things may be heading in terms of the security apparatus in Hong Kong and what that may mean for a variety of businesses. Right now, obviously, the ones that are being hit are you know, anything to do with the, the media and uh, those who may have had a, a voice or you know, somehow an affiliation with the, the, the pro-democracy um, protests that happened in, in 2018, 2019. But you know, it's, others are, are watching it carefully to see what it means for their business, and I think it bears watching closely. And the final thing I mentioned, you, met, you brought up uh, Xinjiang. This has been something that uh, we've heard from a lot of businesses who suddenly, in, you know, not only for their own concerns and brand awareness issues uh, of uh, uh, having a connection to Xinjiang, but also because of uh, U.S. regulatory action and uh, uh, things coming out of the Congress to say, hey, you need to know your suppliers if you have you know, suppliers that are providing you with material, cotton or other material out of uh, Xinjiang, you know, you may be at risk. And so we had a rush of companies coming in who, you know, had to suddenly take a look at their supply chains in a way that, uh, to a granularity that perhaps they hadn't done in the past to try to get a sense of what is their their exposure to uh, a supply chain with a that's got a nexus of some sort, however small, in, in Xinjiang. And also things in advance of uh, sponsorships now coming up for the uh, Beijing Olympics that's six months out. You know what? What does this mean for our our company? Are we gonna? Is this gonna be something that you know is gonna come back to bite us? Or is it something that we can ride out? Uh, there's a lot of concern on, in those areas. So I, I suspect that that latter pressure is uh, only going to continue to build over the next six months, uh, the Olympics. But that's gonna be something that um, all of these issues that we just discussed are going to be at play. And uh, you're going to probably see a greater drumbeat of uh, from governments to NGOs uh, to you know, corporate boardrooms really having to weigh these issues and, and what their exposure is in China. And Randy, um, as we go through these issues, and you've spoken about there will be volatility here, is there a prospect is there a trend line for any of this getting better before it gets worse? Or in your view, should we expect heightened tensions for a while? Well, unfortunately, I would expect heightened tensions for the foreseeable future. Uh, I think both sides are, uh, I think, would rather have you know, their own preferred form of guardrails. On. That was uh, when the Deputy Secretary of State just went to China a week and a half ago, that was the stated reason to have a meeting and uh, try to discuss these guardrails. And the meeting didn't go over so well. Uh, you know, China's got its own political pressures, and right now, sounding tough and talking tough to the United States is very much at the forefront in a way that it's uh, it traditionally hasn't been. Uh, and it's not easy on the U.S. side either to to really uh, throw a bone to, to China at this point. I think you've got an administration that's uh, looking at uh, the midterms next year, and they they uh, do not want to have, give the Republicans an issue of, of looking weak on on China, among all the other pressures they've got for those elections. So it's I think both sides politically have an incentive to keep uh, keep talking tough and and not have too many conciliatory actions. 
And then just the natural pressures over all these issues that we've been discussing are going to continue to add to that mix. Uh, you you may get you know a slight bump if there's a meeting with uh, uh, Biden and Xi Jinping at the G20 meeting in October. Uh, that's probably will happen, although it's not uh, confirmed as of yet. But I think it's it, it, there is a at, at the highest level a desire to have at least some level of continuing communication here to try to uh, let things or keep things within a certain bounds of competition. But uh, right now, there are, there are more things out there that could potentially go south in this relationship and a, a political environment where neither side will have a lot of room, uh, at least as much room as they used to, to be able to back down or to de-escalate. Uh, it's going to be a tough environment, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Randy, maybe I can get a little bit philosophical with you, but I, I'm finding a, uh, a mirror of issues, uh, both that we're dealing with here in the U.S. and that China's dealing with. And I'm not saying we're, we have the same objectives uh, or we're dealing with them in the same way, but it is interesting. Uh, are there some issues where there can be closer cooperation between China and the U.S.? Common ground that could be uh, maintained and maybe built upon. No, it's a great question. Yeah, there, I mean, there certainly are. Climate change is uh, routinely thought of as one of those. Uh, since uh, China has certainly come out and and stated some fairly, for them, uh, fairly ambitious goals, uh, and yeah, you know, they they obviously see the 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 issue uh, as being you know, one that uh, is going to demand. Uh, global action. They're, they are a key contributor of emissions, and they're going to have to react. And so I've made some promises on that. Uh, and that certainly is an area where, particularly this administration, is is engaged in a dialogue with China and, try, and sees that as one area that it, not only it should, but it has to figure out a way to, to, um, to work with, with China. And I think China, maybe not quite as much as this administration thinks in that direction, but uh, it, it, that is one area that I think is is pretty ripe for uh, some cooperation. Uh, and I think there's a, a, a general desire on the part of uh, China to uh, maintain stability and uh, not, to avoid conflict, per se, and on issues so that they don't uh, get out of hand. Uh, that would be maybe a little less so today than, than we've had in, in times past, but generally speaking, uh, I think China would be receptive to that, uh, and it's obviously sees itself as a peer of the United States, and, and everybody else is kind of a lesser power. So it always uh, would would welcome that opportunity to have that kind of dialogue uh, with the U.S. as long as it's not seen as somehow being uh, subservient in any kind of way in this this political environment. So I think those areas really are are probably the best bet for um, action. You know, you've seen over you know, the 2008 financial crisis uh, and uh, you know, some issues during the, uh, the, the COVID pandemic of uh, sort of global uh, financial stability. There's a, an interest there on all parties as well to, uh, to try to work together. I think the uh, People's Bank of China and, and U.S. Department of Treasury have a pretty good uh, relationship developed over the years. I think that's also a fair, bright spot in terms of uh, what 
cooperation might look like. But you mentioned cryptocurrency, and certainly China's cracking down on that, but it's also uh, really promoting its its uh, digital RMB, its its own cryptocurrency put out uh, and created by the, the People's Bank of China. So part of the motivation of that crackdown is to really promote that use. And if you ask, well, okay, why is this such an important area for China? It's a way to push back on the U.S. dollar uh, dominated uh, uh, global financial system and uh, the strength of U.S. sanctions and the uh, the issues that that causes for Russia and, and China and that. So uh, they see great benefit in in uh, developing this their own cryptocurrency. So I think that's certainly at play there uh, in a, for at least part of the reason for doing so is to lessen the the dominance that the, the U.S. has traditionally had since World War II in the global financial system. So it's, um, you know, the, the motives are kind of twofold there. On the one hand, they want to maintain a, a level of uh, this economic policy coordination, in a sense, with the U.S., but also trying to get to the day where they're less needful of having to have that cooperation because they've got their own safeguards. So I think all those motivations are at, at play, uh, which do, does offer you know, some uh, avenues that I think will still keep that competition with China in certain bounds. But uh, certainly the trend line is is not going in the favorable direction overall of, uh, uh, you know, the number of things that the two sides can openly cooperate on. And that's, I think, the heart of the problem. Within your remarks, you seem to be suggesting, and I don't want to oversimplify this, but there are a lot of psychological elements that must be understood in terms of um, national pride, one country not wanting to be dictated to or appear to be subservient to, the desire to control one's own destiny and a a recognition that um, within the world economy there, there is rising competition, whether it's for the primacy of the world currency or primacy around tech, primacy around emerging texts such as AI, and notions of complete independence. Am I hitting upon some of the themes that I'm hearing you identify that must be understood as part of the ongoing relationship between the West and China? Uh, Absolutely. Um, Yeah, this is another area where understanding what the priorities are for uh, the Chinese Communist Party in general and, and Xi Jinping in particular, and, and frankly, just taking him at its word, is very important. Uh, that is certainly something that the party has done ever since its, uh, its uh, founding 100 years ago, uh, and certainly through the, the Chinese Civil War and since. You know, they have uh, built the, uh, the party up as if, you know, if there was no Communist Party, there would be no new China, and that whole century of humiliation that they call it, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, basically the 19th century into the early 20th century, uh, that was you know, humiliating for for China. That they played up. They are the the savior of China and bringing it back to its glory. I mean, Xi Jinping's major initiative for a number of years now has been uh, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. It's a very important priority for Xi Jinping, and it's very popular among the Chinese people. 
and it's uh, you know, they're rightfully proud of uh, the the growth and uh, the the position that China is in the world, uh, the uh, strength of its economy, the influence in the world, uh, the uh, pride in you know the uh, technologies and the capabilities of, of China as a nation. Uh, that's something very much that Xi Jinping, the party, plays up to and is, is genuinely popular among the Chinese people. And, you know, you can understand that uh, if, if you were in their shoes, that's a pretty good position to be in. The question that uh, I know a number of people on the ground there have as uh, Americans or otherwise as foreigners, as, well, where is all this leading? Is it, we've seen this in history sometimes where that can get out of hand, uh, sort of sense of nationalism, if that's not kept within a certain bounds. And I don't think you know they're there yet, but it's it's definitely moving in that direction where uh, you you see that that rise of nationalism uh, that's going on. A lot of it justified, but if it's taken in the wrong direction, you could see it's, it sort of locks you into a situation where you could end up in some form of conflict and. Uh, it has gone too far. And the, the recent meetings that have taken place between the U.S. and China, you've seen that play out. The meeting in Anchorage in last March and this most recent uh, Deputy Secretary of State meeting in uh, Tianjin was marked by Chinese officials having to put out you know, very stern statements of saying, we're not going to be lectured to by the U.S. and you're, you are no, no longer qualified to to tell us what to do and things like that. And they're selling the proverbial hats and T-shirts now with these quotes of telling the U.S. you know basically to stick it. That's that trend is is uh, really coming on there, and people are concerned where that might lead. And like I said before, on both sides you have a a political environment that's going to be harder to back off of those views because neither no, no side's going to want to appear weak. So your space to resolve things is less now than it, it uh, would be in uh, a, what we would call, I guess, normal times. But it's and it doesn't look like that's going to turn around anytime soon. So uh, we're, we're kind of in a situation where we're kind of fraught for you know, how to deal with um, these coming years. As always, great insights. And we didn't talk about the Chinese sanctions quid pro quo. When the U.S. issues sanctions, they have their own, which they issue. So much of what you need to understand about doing business in China is actually out there in the open. And you've spoken about, obviously, companies monitoring their industries and their names and what their employees or supply chains may be up to. Um, but there's something else, which is the party often issues reports. They have priorities. They have agendas. They have plans for, you know, 5, 10, 25 years out and rather open um, in they're being very clear what they're trying to accomplish. And is that still the case? And then secondly, what are those official pronouncements uh, telling you right now? That is a very important point. What I try to tell anybody who will listen is there's no you know, hieroglyphics really in, in understanding where China's going in a number of these areas, uh, virtually all of these areas. Xi Jinping is saying it out loud. Just listen to what he is saying. Uh, these are a very public you know, pronouncements. Uh, there's a, a book that was just put out by, um, I forget the gentleman's name now, he's over at the NSC now, 
scholar who was brought into the NSC of the current administration. He just wrote a book on uh, you know, China's great you know, sort of master plan to, to dominate the world, in a sense, uh, going forward. And you know, he actually brings up a number of good sources. But frankly, a lot of this is through Xi Jinping's own statements and, uh, and policies from the, the Made in China 2025 plan they put out in 2015 made very clear that 174 pages of industrial policy of here's the industries we, we need to be a leader of, here's what what the percentages are going to look like, at least initially, of what we're going to do with foreign content and what's got to be domestic and you know where we're going to go with these industries. People didn't want to believe that that was real until it became real. Uh, his talk about civil military fusion, uh, where uh, you know, what they're trying to do in terms of uh, control of data, uh, what the party's goals are in terms of its achievements uh, for making China an advanced economy that uh, is you know, at, at, you know, basically world competitive is uh, coming down the pike in a, in, a, in a time frame that's even more condensed than they previously publicly put out. Uh, it's the re- great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and what that means for China's willingness to stand up and, and say things on the world stage. Very open comments on, on this. I'm not trying to, to make it into some type of... Um, uh, master plan that's out there, but it's being surprisingly public in terms of what the ambitions are of what, what China is trying to produce there. And you know, a lot of it is, you know, not necessarily something that you know, if you were in their shoes, you, you would probably do yourself. Uh, it, very understandable goals, but they basically have meant what he's had to say for a long time. So, you know, I think people should just pay attention to what is actually being said. There's not a real mystery here. So, Randy, on that uh, concluding note, I want to thank you for spending time with us, a conversation no doubt to be continued. I think you've provided some great insights, uh, both for companies that either navigating or are about to navigate uh, the markets of China. It's important to sort of have a certain degree of empathy when you're doing business these days uh, from a geopolitical standpoint. And empathy doesn't mean that you have to agree with someone, but at least understand where they're coming from, both on the U.S. regulatory side and the Chinese side, uh, to understand that the environment is fluid. One should expect that uh, a certain amount of volatility, obviously a certain amount of adverse political, media, and regulatory coverage, and your prediction that uh, things will likely get worse before they get better. And certainly, I think we all hope that none of this escalates into a military uh, situation. So thank you again for sharing the insights, and uh, we look forward to remaining in touch. Sounds great, David. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Randall Phillips is Managing Partner for Asia at the Mintz Group, a global due diligence and investigations firm. RAIN is a platform for collaboration where information can be shared and people can connect with each other because corporations are being called upon to manage risks that they never were invented to manage. Subscribe today to RAIN's core membership and get our daily Risk Book Digest weekly intelligence briefs on cyber, geopolitical, and financial risk, access to knowledge-sharing webinars, and breaking alerts on important risk developments. Find out how RAIN can power your business to success at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. 
I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.